So what I'd like to do this morning is we're going to be a little backwards in the service. We're going to go to the scriptures at the end of the service when I give the answer. But I want to take some time and describe the situation. You know, platitudes, just slogans, never fix anything. And we really have a bumper sticker mentality in the United States now. And we need to do some deep thinking about who, first of all, who are these people who want to destroy us? What are the attacks on our first responders that are happening today? What's going on in the broader culture? And then what's the answer? So that's what I'm going to try and accomplish today. Let's have a word of prayer and I'll get started. Lord, thank you so much for the first responders who have come today. And Lord, I know that there are many others working right now to protect us, to make sure that we are safe and taking care of of our fellow citizens in our community. Lord, the Bible says, Greater love hath no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. And the people that we are honoring today, they are willing to do that. And then those that we are remembering today, they have already done it. So Father, help us to have some clear thinking about these subjects today. And then, Lord, help us to leave with some hope for tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a world where we're constantly lied to by the media. Would you all agree with that? We're constantly lied to. The, the response to radical Islam since 9-11 is that Islam is a religion of peace. And that it's just a very tiny minority of Muslims around the world that would want to do us harm. How many of you have heard that said? And I think that many of the people who say that, they mean well. They're big-hearted people. They don't want to hurt people's feelings. The only problem is it's just not true. It's a complete myth. Sometimes people are are told that the word Muslim means peace. It doesn't. It means submission. And the goal of Islam around the world is to bring the rest of the world into submission. That's the goal of it. And one of the common attacks in response, if you make a statement that, yes, Muslims do want to submit the whole world, cause the whole world to submit to Islam, then the response to that is, well, Christians have done that in history. Well, what we would say to that is there are certain groups of people calling themselves Christians who have done that in history, and those who have done that were wrong. They were wrong. And you teach your children if, you know, your child says something wrong, and they say, well, Johnny says it. Well, if Johnny jumped off a bridge, would you jump off the bridge too? And yet that's the argument that we're given when we confront this subject of radical Islam. In this day, on this day, 9-11, one of the things that needs to happen is we need to understand who attacked us. They are Muslims. The claim is that radical Islam is a tiny minority of the Muslim population around the world. Critics of clear thinking on this matter get away with propagating this myth by limiting the radical label, if they use it at all, to those who actually commit terrorist acts. So here's the idea. Yes, there are 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, but there's only a tiny fraction of those who are terrorists. Well, that is a true statement, but it's also an incredibly naive statement. You see, all of those who perpetuate the acts, they come from a group. They draw their financial, moral, and religious support 
from those who are themselves not terrorists, but are radical Islamists. So what percentage of Muslims in the world could we call radical Islamists? How could we figure this out? Well, there are 1.6 billion Muslims in 49 countries where they have the majority. According to a Pew Research poll in 2011 and a few others that I'll reference, let's see if we can figure this out. So in 15 countries, there is a population of 942 million Muslims. 15 countries have a population of 942 million, 400,000 Muslims. So the most populous of the Muslim countries is Indonesia, and Indonesia has 205 million people. According to a, now listen to this, we're trying to figure out if it's a tiny, tiny minority of Muslims who are radicals. In a 2009 poll of Muslims in Indonesia, 50% believe in strict adherence to and application of Sharia law. Now remember what Sharia law is. That's, that's like saying law, law. Sharia means law. And it, is, it governs not only behavior, it governs everything. It is an entire political and legal system. And that is that women are to be subjugated, they can be murdered, anything can happen to women. Anyone who is not Muslim can be treated that way. That's what Sharia law is. And so if someone believes in a strict adherence to Sharia law, that is by definition radical. Right? 50% of those in Indonesia believe in a strict adherence to and application of Sharia law. 70% believe that the U.S. or Israel or someone else was responsible for 9-11, not Muslims. So, according to just the, the, the basis definition of what a radical could be, there are 143 million radicals just in Indonesia. Now, how many of you recognize 143 million people that want you dead is a problem? But that's just one country. Egypt has 80 million of those 80 million, 65% want strict Sharia law in every Muslim country. And 70% have positive or mixed feelings about bin Laden. So that's 55.2 million radicals. Pakistan has 179 million people, and 76% want strict Sharia law in all Muslim countries. That's 134 million radicals. Bangladesh, 149 million Muslims there. In a 2013 poll, listen to this, 25% believe suicide bombings or targeting of civilians is justified. 82% want Sharia law to be the law of the nation. And two-thirds believe that honor killings of women can sometimes be justified. How many of you think that's radical? So, in Bangladesh, there are 121.9 million radicals. In Nigeria, there are 75.7 million Muslims. 71% endorse Sharia law. That's 53 million. In Iran, there are 74 million. In 2014, 83% of those support strict Sharia law. That's 62 million radicals. In Turkey, which is considered a moderate Muslim country, 32% believe that honor killing of women is justified. That's 23.9 million radicals. In Morocco, there are 32.4 million Muslims. Three-quarters support Sharia law. That's 24.6 million radicals. In Iraq, there are 31.1 million Muslims. 78% believe that honor killings are justified. That's 24.3 million radicals. In Afghanistan, 76% support honor killings. 99% want Sharia law to be the law of the land. Someone said that's like a Cuban election. 
That's 24 million radicals. How many of you are seeing that this is not a tiny minority? Jordan. Jordan is considered a moderate Muslim country. They have 6.4 million Muslims. Hamas has a 60% approval rating. Now, Hamas is there for one reason, to kill anyone that is a Jew. That's what Hamas wants to do. They want to drive Israel into the sea and kill every Jew. 60% approval of Hamas. That's 3.8 million radicals. Palestinian areas, that's 4.3 million. 78% had positive feelings about bin Laden. 89% support terrorist attacks on Israel. 89% support Sharia law. That's 3.8 million radicals. How about France? In France, there are, imagine this, 4.7 million Muslims in France now. Of those in France, 35% believe that suicide bombings could be justified. That's 1.6 million radicals in France. Great Britain has 2.8 million Muslims. 78% of those want cartoonists prosecuted if they depict Muhammad in anything but a flattering situation. They want him prosecuted. There are, that means, 2.2 million radicals in England. How about the United States? We have a small Muslim population, 2.6 million. 13% believe violence against civilians could be justified. 19% had a favorable view toward Al-Qaeda, or they just didn't know, because you know, that's hard to understand. So what does that mean? We have 500,000 Muslim radicals in the United States. So of the 942,400,000 total population of the 15 countries, 680,000, 680,030,000 of those espouse radical policies. And we haven't even included... Algeria, Syria, Sudan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Tunisia, Somalia, and Libya. Do you think there are any radicals in those countries? So it is simply a myth to say that Islam is a peaceful religion. It is a, their majority, the vast majority of professing Muslims hold to radical ideology. And we need to understand that that is not compatible with the American legal system. Is that clear? Now, we also have religious liberty in the United States. Isn't that wonderful? That means that Muslims are free to practice their religion in the United States of America until it bumps up against the law. Honor killings, subjugation of women, the killing of homosexuals. All of that is completely illegal. And the problem is you can't submit to Sharia law and the Constitution of the United States at the same time. I wonder if the judge that was just sworn in in Washington, D.C. acknowledges that. How many of you saw that our president appointed a Muslim judge who swore on the Quran? What's the Quran say? Do you want her to uphold the Quran? <laughs> You see, the Bible is completely compatible with our legal system. Why? Because our legal system was based on the Bible. That's why people swear on a Bible to uphold the Constitution of the United States because the foundation of the Constitution is the Bible. Don't let secularists lie to you. If you've been told that our founders were deists and they weren't really Christians, whoever told you that, they're just lying. You can have your own opinions. You can't have your own facts. Facts are stubborn things. They were all active Christians. Every one of our founders was an active Christian, except for three that they like to mention. 
and they were all favorable to Christianity. Of course, one of them that is always identified as Benjamin Franklin was considered a secularist. But when they were having a hard time deciding on the Constitution, he called for a, for a recess for prayer. The, the, we are just lied to about the foundation of our nation. And the foundation of our nation was not secular. And we'll see that in a minute. And I'll give you a quote from someone you know, towards the end of, of my message. But on this day where we are remembering September 11th, we need to not allow secularists, progressives, those like President Obama and others, to give us the impression that Christianity and Islam are on equal footing. They are not. They are not. Now, how many of you women here drive? Would you raise your hands? And we're all nervous by this. We understand. If you like to drive, then you probably shouldn't live in Saudi Arabia. You wouldn't be allowed to drive. It's so fascinating that in the Bible, we have the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31, who was a political leader in the community. She was a wife and a mother. She was a businesswoman. And she's exalted. She is the only person other than Ruth in the Bible that is identified as a virtuous woman. How would that virtuous woman do in Islam? She wouldn't. She'd be killed. She'd be killed. So those who would, and that, just so you know, that was under Judaism. If she were a Jewish woman, what would Muslims do? And to show the difference... Jews are not safe in the Palestinian territories. The Palestinians go to Israel for work. And the Israelis welcome them with open arms. The, the worldview between the Judeo-Christian ethic and the Muslim oppressive, uh, uh, primitive understanding of the world, they're night and day. They are not equal. And that multicultural idea that is put forth by our White House it is completely absent from reality. It's just not there. This is not just the rantings of a Baptist preacher. This is a Baptist preacher describing reality. And when describing reality makes you seem crazy in our culture, that's when you know that our culture is upside down and we have been lied to over and over and over and over again. Just so you know, those statistics that I quoted were from Pew Research. They're not from some right-wing rag. It's important that we understand this. It seems fair to assume that those who tried to kill us on September 11th and tried to destroy our economy, that they would like to do it today. Would you all agree with that? Why do they want to do that? Because they have a worldview. They have a worldview. They worship a God named Allah, who is a pagan God through the prophecies of a, a, a tyrant named Muhammad who would subjugate women and torture them and was just, you can't imagine how evil a person he was. And then his followers have come down through history and have tried to enforce that kind of wickedness on the entire world. Those are the people that are still against us. From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. That was when Thomas Jefferson sent the Marines to fight against the Muslims. 
And what we are accused of is Islamophobia. You're a racist if you think that Islam is out to get Americans. Racist. The only problem is, for those brilliant people who say that, is Islam's not a race. It's a religion. There are people of many different races in that horrible philosophy called Islam. And it doesn't matter what race they are. If they want to kill us, we must be prepared to stop them. Now, we live in the heartland. I don't know that we're going to have Muslim invaders in Sydney, Ohio. But if we did, we have a group of people ready to stand against them. That's right. That is so important that we get that. And let me say this. There's never been a group of Baptist invaders. You might knock on your door. Hey, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? If that's the worst thing that you get, that's a lot different than some Muslim trying to saw your head off with a butter knife. Okay? It's a little different. So when we understand... What's going on in the world, we understand that we are being lied to by leftists. There's another area we're being lied to, and that's this whole Black Lives Matter movement. And for our people in law enforcement, it's not only for the police, because when fire respond in these areas, they're being shot at by people. And the, the, the cry of Black Lives Matter, it needs to be addressed. Now, let me ask you a question. Do Black Lives Matter? Do white lives matter? Do Asian lives matter? Do Jewish lives matter? Amen. Do Michigan lives matter? Don't answer. Be careful. (laughs) We're in trouble. They just matter. Lives matter. And if you say all lives matter, supposedly that's an insult today. Do you guys realize how dumb that is? Again, you've got to take your brain out and play with it to think that way. But that's the stuff that's being forced on our public servants. And it's difficult for them to respond because if you respond in just the most natural way, using the plainest language, you're accused of racism. Now, let's step back. I'm sorry that I have to say this, but there has been racism in the United States. There shouldn't be any racism today. And I promise you, it's not tolerated at Grace Baptist Church. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17 that he's made of every nation of one blood. We all have blood. We're all people. doesn't matter what the pigment of your skin is. And remember, that was the whole thrust of the civil rights movement, but now that's being thrown away. Now your skin color is everything. That's just not true, people. It is the content of your character that matters. And when it comes to the, the laws of the land, they have to be applied equally across the board in order for us to be truly free. Because if you're trying to elevate one race above another, someone's going to lose their God-given rights. And so it's very important that we understand this. Now, all right, let's talk about Black Lives Matter for a minute. And the reason I'm doing this is I want our church and those representatives from the police department, the civil servants here in in our service, to know what they're up against. And many of you do. Some of you might not. So let me talk to you about it. First of all, Black Lives Matter, is a, it's a Marxist group. It's a Marxist group. Now, what is a Marxist? A Marxist is a radical communist. Now, I know this sounds crazy, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like you're a conspiracy theorist? You just, you just sound crazy when you say it. 
Let's see if that's true. Black Lives Matter launched in 2013 with a Twitter hashtag, hashtag Black Lives Matter, after neighborhood watchman George Zimmerman was acquitted in the Trayvon Martin killing. Can you believe that's only 2013? Doesn't it seem a lot longer than that? So 2013. Where did that come from? Well, radical leftist activists, Alicia Garza, Patrice Colliers, and Opal Tometi, they claim credit for the slogan and the hashtag. Following the Michael Brown shooting in August of 2014, Dream Defenders, an organization led by the Working Families Party. Now, does anyone here know anything about socialism or Marxism? The Working Families Party comes straight out of the vernacular of Marxism. All right? Now, remember what Marxism is. Karl Marx was a follower of the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Friedrich Hegel. And Hegel didn't like society the way it was. So that's where you have your thesis, your antithesis, and your synthesis. And when you get, so what you have is you have the, the traditional belief system. That's the thesis. That must be fought against. You have to have a revolution. You have to fight against the status quo. All right? And so to come up against that, you have its direct opposite, and that's its antithesis. That's the opposite of it. And the whole purpose of the struggle is to come to a synthesis. Come together right now. That's that whole... And, and again, the Beatles, they, they loved that Marxist terminology. That was the basis of it. And so that, that synthesis. But the problem is, once you get to that synthesis, they're not done. Because now that synthesis is the traditional status quo. And so now that needs an antithesis. And so now you got to keep fighting. The struggle is real. And you got to keep fighting. Now you have a new synthesis. And they're never done. There is no end game because the whole thing is the revolution. It doesn't have anything to do with accomplishing anything. That's Marxism. And the purpose of Marxism is to destroy religion. Remember, religion is the opiate of the masses. Get rid of religion and get rid of private property. Because private property is the basis of all the ills in the world. I wonder why, when there's a riot with Black Lives Matter, what do they have to do? Destroy private property. How does, how does destroying a black man's gas station, a black man's convenience store, how does that advance the cause for Black Lives Matter in your community? Because it's not about advancing black people. It's about destroying the system that we have. And I'll prove that to you. So they are Marxists. They were part of the Working Families Party. And then ACORN, remember ACORN? Activist and Occupy Wall Street anarchist, uh, Nalini Stamp. Now, Nalini Stamp is the person who popularized Hands Up, Don't Shoot. How many of you have seen that, Hands Up, Don't Shoot? Now, you all know that never happened. How many of you recognize that did not happen? That's complete fiction. And yet people today still believe that it happened. This is what our police are up against. Something that never happened. And what is this Nalini stamp trying to accomplish? Well, what she did after the deaths of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, and others, she said this, The real enemy is the system. We are actually trying to change the capitalist system we have today because it is not working for any of us. So she's saying that capitalism is not working for any of us. She's the head of the Black Lives Matter movement. 
She is the person who coined and popularized the hands-up-don't-shoot movement. And the purpose of it is to undermine capitalism. What is capitalism? It is the basis of our economy and it is what made us the strongest engine of freedom, liberty, and personal wealth in the history of the world. You see, our founders understood the significance of private property. So in our Constitution, where you could, the, you, the forced quartering of soldiers couldn't happen, what was that? Well, if soldiers were marching through, they could take over your house. Just come in, take your food, take your beds, kick you out, leave you with nothing. Our founders understood that the basis for a free society is private property. They are not allowed to do that. They can't do it. Amen? There's so many areas that we could go with this. But capitalism is good. It's good. That is that you have something that someone else needs and you provide it. What it, what it is, it's forced productivity. Because if I don't have something worthwhile to trade with you, I starve. And what ends up happening is capital is produced, money is produced by a productive people. Now listen, that is the foundation of the United States of America. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. I'm going to move on right now. I want to talk about some of the claims that are made by the Black Lives Movement. Um, and that is that the, the concept is that black people are being shot constantly by police. How many of you know that that's the, the rhetoric today? And if you understand, if you hear the hip-hop people, the elites that, that put out the music, um, those, uh, you know, the Barbara Streisand crew, they have this idea that all that police want to do is find a black guy and shoot him. That's the idea. That's Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick, who says, I will not honor the flag or the national anthem of a country until it stops oppressing black people. Which is interesting because he was raised by two white people who adopted him. And he has the opportunity to make $19 million a year. And he's protected by police and fire every time he steps out. It's shameful. It's shameful. We're going to give some answers to this. What about blacks being shot by police more than whites? A recent Harvard study concluded that 1,332 police shootings between 2000 and 2015 reveal that blacks are actually 20% less likely to be shot at police, at, by police than whites are. Facts are stubborn things. Despite the facts that blacks and whites are just as likely, equally likely to be carrying a weapon. This is further confirmed by a study conducted by John Jay College of Criminal Justice Assistant Professor Peter Moskos, who determined that when the homicide rate is adjusted, whites are 1.7 times more likely than blacks to die at the hands of police. So all you white people, be careful. We have police in here. <laughs> now, what's interesting? There, in, in our culture, some people could think that that, that was racist to say it that way. No, we're, we're speaking in the vernacular of the day. This is where we are. Next, police are also less likely to shoot an unarmed black suspect than an unarmed white suspect. 
This is according to a study conducted by Washington State University, which took 80 police officers, most of whom were white males from the Spokane Police Department, and put them in over 1,500 simulated scenarios involving both armed and unarmed suspect, suspects who were both black and white. The researchers concluded that the officers were three times less likely to fire at an unarmed black man than an unarmed white man. These are facts. According to the American Free Press, Peter Papaheracles, we're real close. For every black killed by a white police officer every year, there are 71 blacks killed by blacks. That's where we are. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Putting these figures into perspective, on average, 9,252 black-on-black murders occur every year over the past 35 years. If you add that together, it comes to 323,820 blacks killed by other blacks on America's streets in just a three-and-a-half-decade period of time. What about the idea that blacks are pulled over more than whites? Blacks do not get pulled over for traffic stops more often than whites, but that's, I'm sorry, percentage-wise they do, but that's because blacks commit a disproportionate amount of traffic offenses. Heather McDonald wrote a book called The War on Cops, How the New Attack on Law and Order Makes Everyone Less Safe. The Obama Justice Department tries to assert that racial bias in the Ferguson Police Department was inherent in the fact that blacks consisted of 85% of all traffic stops between 2012 and 2014, despite only being 67% of the city's residents, while whites consisted of 15% of all traffic stops while being 29% of the city's residents. All right, so now someone did a study of this, though. So they studied the driving habits of those in New Jersey and in North Carolina. On the New Jersey Turnpike, for example, black drivers studied in 2001 sped at twice the rate of white drivers while speeding defined as traveling at 15 miles an hour or more above the posted limit and traveled at the most reckless levels of speed even more disproportionately. This is confirmed by a 2013 National Institute for Justice report that determined that three out of four blacks said that they were pulled over for a legitimate reason. Additionally, the Department of Justice report found that blacks were more likely to be searched after a traffic stop than whites, as 11% of blacks stopped were searched as opposed to 5% of whites. But as McDonald points out, Blacks tend to have a higher rate of outstanding warrants, which explains the discrepancy. Now, here's what's interesting. Let me read one more, and then I'm going to move on. It's hard listening to this stuff, I know, but I just want to get this information out here in this service. Racial activists accuse stop and frisk of being racist, and yet the percentage of blacks stopped is actually underrepresented when compared to the percentage of blacks that commit crimes. And I could back that up. Blacks are not overrepresented uh, but are underrepresented in prison based on reported crimes. So how does all of this work? Someone might say your facts are racist. Let me ask you a question. How can facts be racist? You see, we have a problem in the black community. We have a problem. I'm going to explain the answer to that problem. The problem is not race. Amen? The problem is not race. And we don't have that issue in our area. But all of the Black Lives Matter movement is coming from inner city black areas. 
That's where these Marxists are going in and they're persuading people of a system that simply does not exist. There are some real problems in the black community that we're going to talk about. So we have the lies about Islam. We have the lies of the Black Lives Matter movement. And then I want to address what our police and fire constantly deal with and that's the growth, it's the persistent problem of a growing underclass in the United States. Let me tell you something. A lot of these fire and police, you've never seen them before. You know why? Because your houses don't burn. Because you're not being, they're not being called to your house for domestic violence. They're not being called to your house to discipline their children. What, what we are faced with in the United States, and, and I know that all of you are recognizing it, is the, the substantial growth of an underclass of people that has absolutely nothing to do with race. See, we have a very low minority population in Sydney, but we have a growing underclass of people. How many of you know immediately what I'm talking about? All of these people need the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as people in the higher economic strata need the Lord Jesus Christ. But why do the police and fire spend the, I'm talking 95% of their time in this growing underclass? I want you to think about something. You know, how many of you have heard of white privilege? Have you heard of white privilege? Let's change that. I like to call it marriage privilege. Marriage privilege. Think about this. Among black families among married black families. Do you know what the poverty rate is? Married black families, 9%. Do you know what the poverty rate is for white single mothers? 70%. How do we keep there from being a growing underclass? Marriage. It's just simple. It's marriage. I want you to think about some things. In 1963, the illegitimacy rate in the United States was 3%. How many of you think it's more than that now? 3%. Um, the divorce rate, the homes with a divorced parent, 1963, 3.5%. How many of you know someone with a divorced person in the home? It's all changing. Marriage, marriage. Listen to this. This is wild. 1963, 98% of civilian men were in the workforce. Either working or actively seeking work. We have 30% of men between 30 and 39 that don't make a living wage today. I wonder if you asked our police force, how many of your stops where there's a man there is he actively employed? Not very many. Not very many. This is the rise of an underclass in the United States. And it's based on immorality, failure to work, and drugs. By the way, the 1963 number for men working, that was consistent from the time they started keeping the, the figures. Why did people work? Because you would die. You had to eat. And if a guy didn't work, he was a bum. You see, 
But our culture has changed that. During the discussions about the Health Care Act, you had this discussion from Nancy Pelosi that if people don't have to pay for their own health care, they can stay home and be poets. Remember that? And here's what, here's what Harry Reid said. What do you have against freedom? So not working is freedom to Harry Reid. Yeah, you can be really free to die unless at the point of a gun you have the government take money from other people to fund your poetry. Isn't that interesting? That is the rise of an underclass in the United States. Social scientist Charles Murray wrote a book called Coming Apart. He said this, In large swaths of America, this is 1963, doors were routinely, routinely left unlocked. Children were allowed to move around the neighborhood unsupervised and except in the toughest neighborhoods of the largest cities. It seldom occurred to someone walking alone at night to worry about muggers. The nation's prisons held only a fraction of the inmates they would hold by 2010. But clearance rates for crimes and the probability of prison time if, connected, if convicted for a felony were both high. And so we have this paradox compared to later years. Crime was low and few people had ever been in prison. Even in low-income neighborhoods, most of the people in those neighborhoods who regularly committed crimes ended up in jail. People weren't being naive to believe that crime didn't pay because, by and large, it really didn't. Now, listen to this about drugs. As for illegal drugs, we can't put hard numbers to the prevalence of use. Surveys on drug use wouldn't begin until the late 1970s. But there certainly wasn't much happening that attracted attention of the police. In 1963, there were just 18 arrests for drug abuse violations per 100,000 Americans. Today, it's like 1,234. It's crazy. And do you know what the main difference is? In 1963, only 1% of the people in the United States said, I, I don't uh, have any religious preference. 99% of the people identified with some kind of religious association. And now, everything has changed. Why do liberals in government, academia, religion, and media consistently and vociferously repeat these lies? Because these liberals are always seeking change. Their life is one of radical discontent. This is because they have an unrestrained view of government. We have a restrained view of government, and that's based on reality. We know that we live in a fallen world, and we're fallen people living in the fallen world, and so we will never have perfection. Is that right? So we can establish a system that works for everyone. We can establish a system that works for everyone. That doesn't mean everyone does well. Some people just stink at life. There is no way to create a system where everyone has everything they want at every moment. And that is certainly not a right. You see, natural rights are those rights that we are born with, that God gives us. I was not born with a cell phone. So I don't have a right to a cell phone. I was not born with a car. I was not born with things. Material things are not a right. They are things to be earned through hard work. And so we need a system that promotes that. And of course, that is capitalism. Um, we have a restrained view. Things are, yes, there are things that could be better, but they are never going to be perfect. And that fact can't change. How many of you have heard this? This is Robert F. Kennedy. There are those who look at things the way they are and ask why. I dream of things that never were and ask why not. You heard that? Liberals love that. Do you know where that comes from? 
George Bernard Shaw wrote a play, uh, I think, Seeking for Methuselah. And that is, do you know who's saying that in the play? Well, first of all, George Bernard Shaw was a eugenicist. Any of you who have any mixed race, he wanted you to be killed. If you weren't producing, he wanted you to be killed. This is a wicked and evil man, George Bernard Shaw. But he wrote this play, and it's Satan, the serpent, offering the fruit to Eve in the garden. That's who says this. So all these idiot liberals quoting this, they're quoting the devil. You see, this idea of utopia, how many of you have heard of utopia? Sir Thomas More, utopia. Do you know what it means? Do you know what the word utopia means? It's a place that doesn't exist. And so our culture is always, they're seeking for this utopia. What exists is always being compared to what doesn't exist anywhere, and it's not based on reality. The way that I like to say it is, I should be 6'4". And life is not fair because I'm not 6'4". Imagine if I went through my whole life resenting that I'm not 6'4". You see, the problem is that can never happen. That, that's a fictional idea. I have to deal with the world as it is, and that is that all perfect people are 5'7". Sure, that's the way I choose to look at it. Now, all right. Um, the word utopia, it means no place. Marxists want this classless utopia. Social gospel Christians want a poorless society. Um, boy, there's so much left. Let me just finish with this. Government can only do so much. I'm going to quote to you from Francis Grund. In 1825, Francis Grund, seventh son of a German baron, educated in Vienna, decided to seek his fortune in the New World. After spending a year as a professor of mathematics at the Brazilian Military Academy, he moved on to the United States and settled in Philadelphia. A decade later, he published a two-volume appraisal of the American experiment from a European's perspective titled The Americans in Their Moral, Social, and Political Relations. Midway through the first volume, he observed that, quote, no government could be established on the same principle as that of the United States, listen, with a different code of morals. Quote, the American Constitution is remarkable for its simplicity, but it can only suffice a people habitually correct in their actions and would be utterly inadequate to the wants of a different nation. Change the domestic habits of the Americans their religious devotion, and their high respect for morality, and it will not be necessary to change a single letter of the Constitution in order to vary the whole form of their government. Is that where we are? That's where we are. Uh, one of our founders said that our government, I think it was John Adams, was only, our Constitution was only made for a holy and a righteous people. And so you fire, you police, you head into those that underclass. And those are the people that you deal with. What you need to understand is they're not just losers. They're people who have bought into a philosophy that says that morality doesn't matter. And so what do we need? We need civil servants who have respect for right and wrong and for morality and see the problem not as one of economics but as one of morality. You see, it's immoral for me not to work and expect you to feed me. That's immoral. It's immoral for a girl to get pregnant out of wedlock. That's immoral. It's wrong. It's immoral. And it's criminal for those children to grow up without a father. 
You see, in those inner cities, 70% of the kids born are born out of wedlock. In Detroit, where police struggle so much to control, the only, only 1 in 10 kids can read at grade level. It's a horrible situation in those inner cities. And you say, well, they need more money. The Detroit school system receives $15,500 for every student. It's not a money problem. It's a morality problem. And the leaders in those communities have bought into Marxist, anti-God, anti-truth, anti-morality principles that are destroying the lives of those people. So what's the answer? Well, number one, believe that truth exists. And that truth doesn't come from man, it comes from God. Just as our liberties. Laws are protect all but those who violate the natural rights of others. Laws were never intended to defend the whims of the bureaucrat. And what happens is we put our police in situations where they're trying to defend things they don't believe in against communities that never voted for those things. Our system must be back to one of right and wrong. So what are we going to do? I want to give you an example. There's a man named Joshua Morris. Joshua Morris lived from 1726 to 1795. He was a Baptist preacher in Connecticut. And in Connecticut, it was against the law to be anything but part of the state church. The very first time Mr. Morse preached in Stonington, he was apprehended, carried before a magistrate, sentenced to pay 10 shillings or be whipped 10 times. At the public whipping post, he didn't have the money to pay the fine. It was 10 shillings. It was a lot of money then. And, of course, the lashes he was preparing to receive. Now, listen to this. He was taken to the post by the order of the magistrate, but the constable... Instead of inflicting the lashes, pled the cause of the innocent sufferer and remonstrated against the wickedness of the law, the cruelty of the court, and utterly refusing to perform the barbarous duty which, he had, which had been assigned him. After spending some time in this awkward position, the constable tendered the magistrate from his own pocket the fine which had been exacted. The magistrate, probably ashamed of his conduct, offered it to Mr. Morse and bid him to receive it and go peaceably away. But as he would pay no money... So he would receive none. And his persecutors, finding him rather unmanageable, went off and left him to take his own course. I want you to think about something. You police officers, you civil servants. I think it's very clear that we're coming to a time when religious people are going to fall on, on the wrong side of the law for simply obeying God. How many of you see that that's the direction of our nation? So at that point, you have to decide, are you going to be like this constable, Joshua Morris, and say, this is a, I'm not going to defend this law. Or are you going to take the guns away from people? Are you going to take their rights away? That's a decision that all of our law enforcement has to make. That's a decision that we have to pray for these guys, these ladies. We have to pray for them, that they can have a core of right and wrong of good and evil, an understanding of our Constitution and our system. And when unjust and unlawful laws, edicts, are passed, 
that they are under no obligation to subject the citizens of a free country to immoral and unjust laws. We need them to know that we as a community are behind them. They are our representatives in the community. That we are together, we're one, we're not against each other. And we will all stand together against unjust laws. That's what we must do. And when all these cries of institutional racism and institutional injustice and then social justice, and there's, not, there's no such thing as social justice. There's only justice. And we all have to have that same mind. Where does that come from? It comes from God. Let's finish up with Romans 13. So what have we learned? What we hear about Islam is not true. What we hear about the police and the Black Lives Matter movement, it's simply not true that we have the growth of an underclass of people in the world. The answer to all of it is truth. Look at what the Bible says, Romans 13, verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of what? The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. This is what these kids in the inner city who fight with police and refuse to respond to lawful commands, they have nothing to fear if they respond lawfully. They should have much to fear if they don't. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. Now look at this. All of you, all of you civil servants who are here, here's what the Bible says about you. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. Do you know what our police are? They're ministers of God to us for good. Then it becomes incumbent upon the police officer to be godly. The firefighter needs to be godly, needs to be holy, needs to understand right and wrong, private property. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. Look at what it says, though. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. We have a false view of government anymore. Somehow, because of the liberalism of our age, we think the government is there to give us stuff. No. Government is there to keep us from killing each other, protect our borders, protect our private property. So government's for. If someone comes into your house, they ought to be very afraid. If they come into your house unlawfully. We're supposed to be given to hospitality, right? Come. <laughs> Don't you come to my house. <laughs> Oh, man. Police, I want you to know that we're behind you. We're for you. Flip side of it is do right. Amen? Do right. Fire, we're, hunt we're, we're behind you. Flip side of it is do right. Understand that you're representing more than just your station. You're representing all of us. You speak for us. But here's what we want you to know. You do right, we are 100% behind you. We are here. Lots of lies in the world. The answer to lies is not more lies. The answer is the truth. Folks, 
We have the truth. Amen? We have the truth. Do you know what the answer to lies is? The truth. The truth. Let's just do right. Let's pray for leaders that will do right. I know that this fall we're going to have an election and the choices are a bummer. And yet, down ticket, we need whoever is elected, whoever's elected president, we need representatives to hold them accountable. If we stay home and vote because we don't like those leaders, boy, then there's no one, going to be no one to hold them accountable. There are so many areas where we just need to do right. Do right. Now, here's the thing. We can talk about that underclass, but we need to make sure that we have good, solid families. Amen? We need to make sure that our children know the difference. And I'm going to finish with this. Of course, I think I said that 10 minutes ago. But I'm going to finish with this. How many of you recognize there's a uniform for the underclass? Is there? I'm talking about hair color. I'm talking about the kinds of clothes they wear. It's almost like there's a store, loser store. And what happens is young people get wrapped up in what they think is going to bring them success because of the music industry and television industry, and yet they need to see the people that are actually successful and how they carry themselves. It's not like that. Amen? It's not like that. And so how do we help our young people? Well, teach them how to dress. Teach them how to talk. Teach them how to walk. I'm telling you, I, our police officers could probably tell you, there's rarely a criminal that looks you in the eye and shakes their hand. You ever talk to somebody that you know is up to no good? Now, there are con men that can look you in the eye and, you know, they're in Washington. But... <laughs> But this, we need to help our kids to know how to function in society. It's just all so important. It's all so important. The most important thing is this. The most important thing. Jesus Christ came into the world. He lived a sinless life. And He died on the cross for the sins of every man. Rich, poor, every race. It doesn't matter. He paid for the sins of the whole world. And there's no way that you can go to heaven without receiving the free gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ wants to give you. It's not about being good. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that doeth good. There's none that seeketh after God. It's not about being good. It's about recognizing that you're not, that you need a Savior. That Savior is Jesus Christ. He died on the cross to pay for your sins so that you could have eternal life. Joining Grace Baptist Church won't take you to heaven. Giving money to Grace Baptist Church will be greatly appreciated, but it won't take you to heaven. It's not. It's not going to take you to heaven. The only thing to take you to heaven is the blood of Jesus Christ. You firemen, you police officers, you risk your lives every day. You'll never know if you're going to come home. If you died, do you know for sure that you're going to go to heaven? You can being a Baptist never took anybody to heaven. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ did. We'd love for you to be in heaven with us. Any of you here, we want you to be in heaven with us. Well, you must really think you're something, that you're going to heaven. Nope, I know that Jesus is my Savior. I know that I can't go. I just received that gift of eternal life that He gave me. And now I know. I want you to know that. Let's all stand together.